Good morning, guys. There's a lot of you this morning. I love it. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tanner. Um, I serve here on the teaching team every now and then, and it truly is an honor to stand before you and teach to the best that I can the Word of God. Um, We don't take that lightly here at The Fold. Every sermon or anything that we ever teach goes through at least one other person. Somebody gets to see it firsthand. It's not a it's not a one man show. It's not a one woman show. It's a community that are that is pursuing the healing and wholeness of God through whatever that may be in our in our community. And Sundays are a part of that, but the biggest part of that is our full groups. Um, and you're going to see throughout today's sermon and throughout today's teaching how fold groups have been a life-changing thing for me and for the church as a whole. So today we are picking up in the lectionary. Um, we're kind of in between series. CJ spent about three weeks in the book of Acts in chapter 10, and if you did not if you were not here for that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that because CJ is a great preacher, but these are three of his best sermons that are just back-to-back full of richness, full of hope, full of grace. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to those um, as well. Full disclosure, uh, about two weeks ago I was diagnosed with a neurological issue that has affected my speech. So if I stutter or stumble over words today, Please have grace. If you don't, that's not cool. But, <laughs> but if I stutter or stumble over words, that is why. And that is also why I'm going to spend the majority of this time sitting down. Um, for the sake of transparency, I just wanted you guys to know that. Like I said, my name is Tanner. Um, I am a middle school English teacher. And if you want to know what that is like, look up the word gaslighting. <laughs> I get gaslit. Every single day by my kids. Be quiet and do your work. What are you talking about? I am being quiet doing your work. Why do you have one letter typed? That's, that's basically what it's like. That and then you get called a bunch of names and then you go home. And that's basically my life every single day. And there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Um, it's great. I love it. I love my kids. I love the school I work for. And it really, really is a blessing. Um, we're going to, like I said, we're going to be picking up a lectionary, and I have the privilege of teaching through the first 12 verses of the book of uh, chapter 5 of Matthew. It's popularly known as the Beatitudes, um, as the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and then we're going to just jump right in. Sound good? All right. <clears throat> Let me take a sip of this fancy water bottle. And so let's, let's read together, starting in verse 1, chapter 5 of Matthew. And it says, When he saw the crowds, he being Jesus, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together and then we will discuss to the best that we can the meaning of the Beatitudes and what that means for us in the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, I ask that in this moment that if there are people in here who are doubting or people in here who this is their last straw with the church or Christianity or Jesus, Lord, I ask that you will give them a fresh wind to to see you in a new light today. Lord, I pray that your words will overpower mine. And Father, I pray that your grace and your hope and your glory is transparent through your teaching today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, CJ talked about a couple of different things. And one of the things he alluded to was something called the Great Awakening. So in Christian history, there, there are a couple of different events. There's the Great Awakening, there's the Second Great Awakening, and then there's the Enlightenment period. Those are three major movements of God that happened in the, in the culture as a whole. And a lot of scholars believe that today we are in something called the Great Deconstruction. And yes, that's a big buzzword. Yes, that's a word that is thrown around a lot. Um, And essentially what it means is it's evaluating your beliefs against Scripture and determining what is true about God and what is not true. And as someone who has walked through this once, and as someone who is currently walking through it again in a different way, Let me be one of the first ones to tell you that it's okay to go through this. It's not a sin to evaluate your beliefs. There's nothing wrong with challenging your beliefs. However, it is important that you have somewhere to start with this deconstruction. I want you to think of it more as refurbishing rather than destroying everything and then building something brand new. And when you refurbish something, you, if it's a house, when you're remodeling a house, you typically, build, you tip, typically break it down to its studs, to its foundation. And I want to encourage you today to let the Sermon on the Mount be the foundation to start with. If you don't know where to start, or if you're in the middle of this and you're kind of searching for different things, let me encourage you to, to try to start here. So in the first century, it was a popular understanding that the Messiah that was to come, this new Redeemer, was to be like the first Redeemer, and that was Moses. And I want to show you that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, this shows that. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is Moses sharing with the Israelites that the new Redeemer that's going to come is going to be like him. In Matthew, 
the purpose for him writing his gospel, him writing his book, was to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So he had to build some sort of credibility with that. He couldn't just say Jesus is the Messiah and then be done. So what he does in his in his gospel, was he includes different similarities between Moses and, and Jesus. And let me just list a couple of these for you. When Moses and Jesus were born in different parts of history, the king or the pharaoh, whoever was in power, was informed of a new liberator being born. You have the pharaoh and you have Herod. Both were hunted by these figures of power to be killed. Both barely escaped. Moses was put into the basket and floated down the river. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary all fled to Egypt. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Moses led a revolution to free his people, known as the Exodus. Jesus is the revolution that frees his people. Moses ascended the mountain to receive teaching, which we call the Ten Commandments. He received that teaching from God and then speaks of God to the Israelites. Jesus ascends the mountain to teach the intention of God's will under his own authority. So Moses receives teaching from God and Jesus gives teaching as God. And we see that here in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew. And it was important to include these similarities, like I said, because of the expectations that were set in Deuteronomy. The Old Testament expectations granted Moses authority in the Spirit to lead the people of God. And they were familiar with this concept and expected the Messiah to do the same according to Deuteronomy 18.15, which is the verse I just read um, earlier. As an English teacher, it is important to address structures of the books that you're teaching and the books that you're reading. So when Matthew was written, it had no chapters. So it was just this big, long chunk of text that wasn't Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It was just one big, long thing. So what the writer did was he included these things called summary statements. And basically what that did was it helped divide the different narratives throughout the story. So the Sermon on the Mount stretches from Matthew 5 all the way to the end of Matthew 7. And the one that's used here, we're going to read it in just a second, happens right before the text that we just read in Matthew 4.23. And the other two that are listed are Matthew 9.35 and Matthew 10.1. And you can see this if you look throughout the book of Matthew. And it says, Now Jesus began to go over all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. So this statement is important because it outlines what Matthew was going to share about Jesus' ministry in this, in this Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the ancient world in Matthew's Gospel. So before this, you have the genealogy in Matthew 1 that a lot of people skip over because it's just a bunch of names that people don't recognize. But if you study the Old Testament as a part, or study, study Matthew as a part of what the Old Testament is providing, you see how important that is. Matthew 2 is the birth of Jesus. Matthew 3 is the baptism. Matthew 4 is when Jesus is led and tempted into the wilderness. And then Matthew 5 is when his public ministry starts. So the Beatitudes, how many of you guys are familiar with the Beatitudes? Right? If you grew up in church, you probably heard them. And 
I'm trying to remember how Kara told me it was worded when she heard it, but like, Beatitudes are the attitudes of Christ or something like that. That's not entirely wrong, but we're going to approach it a different way. <laughs> not saying you're wrong, Kara. I'm just saying you said it was wrong. Uh, I was wrong. Yes. So, um, but we're going to approach it a different way. And I want you to see, I want you just to see how there is a promise in the Beatitudes. Okay. So, if you think about these, these are more like characteristics rather than something else, right? They're characteristics about what the citizens in the kingdom of God are supposed to look like. And they all have something in common. So the future that the poor in spirit, those who weep, those who mourn, the lowly, the humble, the hungry, and persecuted longed for has come near to them in the person of Jesus to declare that his kingdom belongs to them. This kingdom belongs to them, not because of anything they've done or anything they're going to do, but because of who Jesus is and what he is going to do. And when we open our lives to the transformation power of the risen Christ, the gospel grants us the tools to carry out our lives knowing and believing that the way of Jesus is inclusive. So the characteristics of the Beatitudes. So we're going to go through these one by one and explain what they kind of look like and what they're supposed to be, and then we're going to tie it all together at the end, okay? So the first one is poor in spirit. These are the people who solely rely on God as provider, sustainer, and comforter. If you're taking notes or if you just have a really good memory, I want you to write down or remember the word comforter. Not like the comforter you put on your bed, but as something that comforts you. The only good that these people can hope for is the promise that is found in Psalm 113, 7 through 8. And that promise is, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap in order to sit them with nobles, with the nobles of his people. And there's a lot of comfort in that. The second beatitude, those who mourn, this is a callback to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And I debated on reading this, but when I read it, it's just so, so beautiful and so just rich that I think it ties it even more together. So let me read that excerpt really quickly. From Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, me being Isaiah, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of, the, of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. And as I was studying this text and trying to figure out, like, what does it mean by those who mourn? My immediate thought was, like, oh, those who are, like, mourning death or mourning different types of hardship or grieving. And the more I studied it, the more I read, the more I found out that Jesus is talking about those who are mourning the sinfulness of Israel as a whole. Those who are manipulated by the Roman government to do things that maybe they are not content with doing. Rather than passively living and judging those from a distance, these are the people 
that are actively begging God to make things right. And how do you beg beg God to make things right? Through his humility and his righteousness. And so then Jesus lists, lists, blessed are the humble. These are the ones that are ready for these earthly kingdoms to crumble and for God's kingdom to be fully established. They acknowledge their complete dependence on God and they will inherit the kingdom of God not by violent conquest, not by an election, not by a war, but as a gift from God. And guys, unfortunately, our world is driven by individualism. Like, look around. Every single one of us, completely different. And that is totally normal, totally fine, totally acceptable. However, our individualism typically manifests itself through narcissism and arrogance, especially in the form of movements of ethnic and racial discriminations, such as anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and racism. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to combat such things, not to passively sit back and say, bless their hearts. We are to actively combat such things. And how do we combat such things? Through humility and righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus is speaking of. These, these are not people asking to become better people, but these are the ones who are actively thirsting and hungry for seeking God's comfort for all people through his justice and righteousness. God's righteousness is built upon relationships. First with God through his covenant, and second with humanity through meaningful relationships. And when meaningful relationships are not, hey, I haven't seen you in a month or two, let's go get coffee and then not talk again for six more months. Meaningful relationships are those who show up when you're sick. Those who go take you to pick up your car when you can't drive because you are so sick. Meaningful relationships are the ones that show up when it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. The merciful. God is bound to act in mercy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. The Lord your God will return you from your captivity, this is Moses speaking again, and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among you whom the Lord your God has scattered you. As citizens of the kingdom, we are bound to this same form of mercy and compassion towards everybody. Towards the oppressed, towards the poor, the foreigner, the orphans, the widows, the LGBTQ plus community, the abused, the manipulated, the lost, the hungry, and the stranger. We are bound to mercy because... We are in the kingdom. You can't give mercy with an iron fist, and you definitely can't receive it with one either. Have you ever tried to accept something holding a fist? It doesn't work. Open your hands to the mercy that God gives you so that you can give it to others. The pure in heart. In Matthew, the heart is the source of our outward speech and our actions. It can be assumed that those who are poor in spirit are synonymous with the pure in heart. It is the integrity of the heart that leads to pure external actions. Peacemaking. At this time, the Israelites were ruled by the Romans, so peace was hard to find. 
How many of you guys have read the book by Suzanne Collins called The Hunger Games? Or seen the movie The Hunger Games? So when I first read this text, I immediately thought of those, the dudes that walked around in like the white jumpsuits and like the weird motorcycle helmets that had literally no reason to wear and were saying, calling themselves peacemakers, but then people who were trying to, you know, make things right, they were taking them and killing them. That's just not peacemaking. So it's kind of an antithesis to their name, right? So that's not, that's not what's happening here. It is the act of pursuing interrelational peace with one another is the antithesis in the world which the Israelites lived in and the world that we live in as well. Peace demands reconciliation and forgiveness. What is the opposite of peace? Bitterness. And I once read one time, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. There's also an eschatological theme of comfort within peace. And eschatological just simply means the end times, the times at the end. And the pe- because the peace of Christ is eternal from now until the end of the ages. And then the last beatitude that's mentioned here is the persecuted. The Israelites risked their lives to follow and live out the commandments that they were given by Moses. And the attitude of humility that is identified in the first beatitude, the poor in spirit, achieves its purpose when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecution as we imagine it, we always think of the extreme versions of it in other countries that may not have the, the freedoms or whatever you want to call it to gather or whatever it is. That still exists, and it does, and I'm not downplaying that at all. There are people that I know that serve across the country, across the world that live in places of persecution as such. However, there are other types of persecution as well. And to fight the persecution today, to stand in the face of it, the church needs our, quote, prophetic role to be poor in spirit, humble, mourning, righteous, and pure in heart, and to be peacemakers. And when I say prophetic, I'm not talking about the age of the prophets from the Old Testament. That era is finished. So if you come across someone saying they are a prophet, they are not. Because that era is clear. It's finished. It's done. Prophetic role here simply means we know what our future is in Christ. And we are to extend Jesus' ways to all people and not force them upon others. We are to extend it because it is simply an invitation when we do that, we are living counterculturally. Withstanding persecution in a 21st century Western culture is more of a communal and societal bearing. We hunger and thirst for righteousness on behalf of those who suffer unjustly. We exercise our citizenship in the kingdom to fight for poverty, or to fight poverty, to fight suffering, to fight min- mi- misery, to fight anger, to fight hatred, and to fight conflict that is directly or indirectly caused by structural injustices in our society. We don't have to look hard to find those. CJ shared one earlier today. Because of our fight for these, we will face persecution by those who hold near and dear 
to the right or left extremes and other forms of oppression to the least of these. The school that I work in is a Title I school, and if you're familiar with that terminology, that simply means that we are way above the poverty line. 93% of, our stu- of the students that go to our school live in poverty. There are 800 students at my school. So if you're good at math, 93% is what? A lot. I don't know. I'm not a math teacher. <laughs> I teach English for a reason. But every single day, I come home exhausted because during my planning time, if you're a teacher, you know that's not really planning time. You're going to meetings. You're advocating for your kids. You're trying to get mental health forms signed. You're trying to do X, Y, and Z for the sake of your children. And it's exhausting. And this kingdom that we live in is an already not yet kingdom. And if you look up here at this fancy whiteboard that if you touch it, it's going to fall. It says one thing at the top. Can you read it? What does it say? Grammar Grammar matters. So as an English teacher, I have to do this. kind of obligated to do this. So the Beatitudes that we have read so far are written in two tenses. Present and future. Present tense. The kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Matthew 5, 3, and then at the very end, Matthew 5, 10. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Is is a verb that is in present tense in this context. Now, if you look below, it says, for they will be comforted. That is a future passive tense. Meaning, the passive tense, the subject is receiving the action. They is the subject, receiving the action. From whom? God. They will be comforted. And there are other six, the six other Beatitudes that are in between verses 5 and 10 are all in future tense. For a reason. For they will be comforted. For they will inherit the earth. For they will be filled. For they will be shown mercy. For they will see God. For they will be called sons of God. Now, if you look below it, in red, that is the Greek translation of the verse that's right above it. For they will be comforted. That is pronounced, Hati atoi perikletosentai. Try to say that. (laughs) And I wrote this up here for a couple reasons. One, to show you that Greek is just another language. It's a language that the Bible was written in. And to show you one other thing. The first part of this word, parakletosentai, if you underline it with this beautiful red marker, here, that is the prefix parakle. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the paraclete. And that word means comforter. For they will be comforted. The blessedness that Jesus speaks of is a present active state, which means it's currently happening. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. The poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That allows the future of the individual to be marked by the death and resurrection of Christ. Therefore, we are currently living in a blessed state 
because we belong to the kingdom of heaven. This is the already part of the kingdom that we currently live in. Verse 4 uses the word parakletosentai, which is just the future passive form of the verb to comfort. From this verb we get paraclete, like we just talked about. What we see here is a reminder that while there is still brokenness and hurt in this life because of sin, there is hope that one day the Spirit will restore all things and make all sad things untrue and comfort us. This is the not yet part of the kingdom. Because of the future passive tense of the attitudes, the future hope of no more weeping, no more injustice, no more persecution, and no more death stepped into creation as a man to give us a way to reject the shamefulness of our sin and to adhere to the beauty of his grace. And when we open our lives to the transformation power of the gospel, we are granted the tools to carry out our lives knowing and believing that the way of Jesus is inclusive and provides a future hope. And I want to leave you with two things. German professor Dr. Jeremiah puts it like this. Because of Jesus bringing his presence to you, you are forgiven. You are a child of God. You belong to his kingdom. The son of righteousness has risen over your life. You no longer belong to yourself. Rather, you belong to the city of God, to the community of God. The light of which shines in the darkness. Now you may also experience it out of the thankfulness of a redeemed child of God is a new life that grows. That is the meaning of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Because your sins are forgiven, because of Jesus, you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And because of that, your hope is sealed in his resurrection. And there is comfort in that. Knowing that on this side of eternity, we can mess up every single day, say the wrong things, do the wrong actions. And yes, there will be consequences. That's just how it works. But we are sealed in the resurrection of Christ. That can never be taken from you. The Beatitudes show an already not yet kingdom because the kingdom belongs to us and we are going to step into the fullness of his kingdom one day. That is the promise. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the the ability to study your word in our language and other languages. God, I ask that as we continue to learn and grow and, and welcome other people into this kingdom that you have established, God, I pray that you will grant us peace, grant us grace, and remind us of the hope that is in your spirit, the one that raised you from the dead, and the one that lives in us. And God, I pray that as we encounter people 
who may not look like us or may not believe the same things that we do, remind us that your gospel breaks down barriers, breaks down racial divisions, breaks down religious divisions. Remind us that we can have conversations and can love people who do not look like us, think like us, believe like us. God, give us the strength and courage to welcome those people into your kingdom because you welcomed us first. And I pray this in your name. Amen.